This is John Howell Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS. So what happened out in New Mexico? Alec Baldwin was using a prop gun. This happened 2 o'clock local yesterday. Shot one time, went through her chest, we think, killed her. I mean, she died uh, en route to the hospital, a helicopter. Uh, and then the bullet lodged or bounced off the clavicle of the director of the film who was standing behind her. The conjecture is that they were setting up a shot, and this is all conjecture. I heard an interview with a man that went for an hour today, and he was on the Dan Abrams radio program, and this expert's name was Mike Tristano, and he works out of Los Angeles. He's an armorer and a weapons rental expert for motion picture and television productions. That's all he does. And it was just great to listen to him. So nobody really knows what happened, but the conjecture is that they were setting up a shot. Alec Baldwin, the film set in the 1880s, that's why they're at this ranch in uh, Santa Fe. A single-action revolver from that era, replica, obviously, supposed to be unloaded. This is conjecture. Setting up the shot so the cinematographer, the woman who was killed, very, very good one by all accounts, young, uh, left uh, behind a family. They're setting up the shot. Uh, Alec Baldwin is, we assume, pointing the weapon towards her shot with or without a camera. With or without plexiglass, that's something I learned from the expert, too, is quite often nowadays when they set up the shots and they're using even blanks, you know, percussive effects, they'll set up a uh, some plexiglass to protect the crew from any pyrotechnics. Well, that wasn't included here for one reason or another, and there's more on that coming up. But the gun discharged either with a projectile of some sort that was in the barrel or an actual bullet? Was it a live round? Why would they have a live round there on a movie set? That question was asked of this Mike Tristano, and by the way, reached out to him. He may or may not be able to join us a little bit later in the program. He said in, in his 600 films, 600 different films and TV productions, there's no reason in his mind ever to have live ammunition. But of course, it's a ranch in New Mexico. Who knows? And in this 911 call that I played a few minutes ago, and I'll repeat the second portion, you can hear one of the associate directors uh, talking to the... or She's not an associate director, I'm sorry. She is a script supervisor, and she is uh, telling the 911 dispatcher that she had already had an argument with the AD. This blanking AD yelled at me at lunch because he was asking about the revisions. Blank. Did you see him at my desk and yell at me? He's supposed to check the guns. He's responsible for blank, blank. The 911 operator then says, how many? Caller says, no, 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 I'm, I'm a script supervisor. 911 operator, how many people are injured? And she replies, two. This ID that yelled at me at lunch kept asking about revisions. Did you see him when you my desk and yell at me? He's supposed to check the guns. He's responsible for what's happening. Are you talking to now, No, 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 I'm a script supervisor. How, how many people are injured? Two. So, Alec Baldwin had the weapon. Let's set all the possible criminal talk aside for now. But the civil liability is going to be huge. Okay, we assume they were setting a shot, rehearsing, or shooting, and by mistake they had a hot weapon. Why? I don't know. But with deadly results, one dead, one injured. I want to welcome uh, Brett Gogol. He's our executive producer, and it wasn't until I got in today and we were talking about this that Brett mentioned to me, and I'd like him to reiterate it for the audience, that you've worked on a number of movie and TV sets here in the city? 
Yeah, I've worked on a couple of things here. I've worked on Empire. I worked on the Chance the Rapper movie Slice that came out. Out in D.C., I worked on the second episode of LeBron James' The Shop. A couple other small commercials and small parts on TV shows, things like that. Have you ever worked on a production where they had uh, prop weapons? Yeah, the movie Slice had several, including guns and knives, which were both used. And the background that you have to go through just to get those things on set is usually pretty extensive. As I think you mentioned, it all goes through the prop master, unless it's a really big film, which I kind of assume this one would be, and they'd have an armor on set, which is, that is their sole job. A prop master is in, is in charge of every prop that is on a scene, so not just the weapons, but all the decorations, all of the, anything that an actor is holding, basically. And it has to go through them and back to them, typically. Any weapon on set, as soon as they yell cut, or as soon as they say they're going to reset. And at least with this Mike Tristano, who I heard on the Dan Abrams program, and I, was, I suspect Abrams will have him on his cable program later tonight if you want to check your listings and watch him there, because the guy knew what he was speaking of. He said, I take the weapon, whatever it is, and this would have been for this purpose, the Western, it would have been a single-action 1880s replica pistol. Let's assume it's a pistol. Although they haven't released the weapon, so uh, the information on the weapon, we're just assuming this. And I know Assumption is the mother of all screw-ups, but still, for the sake of our discussion. And if you can add anything to this, either as somebody who's been involved in something like this, member of law enforcement, what have you, 312-591-8900, you can use that to call or text, or write me an email, bigjohn at com. But this Mike Tristano, again, his resume is pretty significant, I'm looking at his website, 600 different productions, he said when at the beginning of a shot, he or one of his people will take the weapon, bring it over, bring the director over, bring the cinematographer over, bring the actors over, bring the extras within close proximity and say, see this, it is empty. Can everybody, can everybody agree this gun is empty? These are blanks. And he said even a novice would understand the difference between a bullet and a blank. The, bl the blanks look like they're crimped off. Uh, they don't have a shell. They don't have a, a slug, obviously. I'm now inserting, we need three shots for this scene. I'm putting three blanks in this weapon. They close it, they hand it to the actor, the actor has to secure it until they all get in their places, and then the director says, uh, action. At that point, the armorer will come back and confiscate the weapon again in between shots. That's my understanding. But as Mike Tristano said, he's only licensed in California and a couple other states. He doesn't even bother to get licensed in New Mexico, and this is based on what I heard him say, because he thinks it's a little too loosey-goosey of an environment in New Mexico. So as you said, Brett, we don't know yet if they had, they obviously had a prop master. Right. Because you heard the 911 caller complaining about the prop master. But there's no information regarding there was an armorer or somebody that handled the weapon specifically. And as Mike Tristano also said, he's been on some sets where things got a little... Uh, too loose for his comfort level, tomfoolery, what have you, and he would confiscate all the weapons, lock them back up in his truck, and tell everybody, come get me when you're ready to be serious. That usually comes down to either the director or the first AD. They, as you mentioned, not only the armorer will do this, but it is largely any set that I've ever been on, the responsibility of typically the first AD to announce to the entire crew that this upcoming scene is using you know, fake ammunition, Oftentimes you'll have police officers on set for that exact reason so that you don't have other disturbances or people believing that it's anything but a film set. So there's a lot of precautions that should be taken. And the other thing to keep in mind is that any set that I've ever worked on, 
even using a prop gun, you usually do not aim that weapon at anybody still. Yeah, he brought that up, too. And he, and he said a lot of these more accomplished actors, too, who do a lot of action films, even when the first AD or prop master or armorer will hand them the weapon, they just they uh, dry fire it towards the ground just in case. Which I know you're not supposed to do. I have a couple replicas myself, and you're not supposed to dry fire them. I have these replicas from the Civil War, which are great pistols, but you're not supposed to dry fire them. You know, I'm just amazed. I got in this conversation with my uh, daughter today. She's 26, and she did not know the difference between a revolver and a semi-automatic pistol. And I was going to take her golfing tomorrow, maybe one of the last nice days that we could get out on the links, but uh, time well spent. Uh, maybe I should take her to a, a shooting range tomorrow to uh, have her, give her a better understanding of how dangerous these can be. I've been shot at three times in my life and hit twice. Once accidentally. The other time they meant to hit me, and they did. But uh, and one time they missed, but uh, we'll talk more about that time for many a little bit later on. But yeah, maybe the best lesson to be learned today is uh, if you have a weapon, fine. We're all Second Amendment advocates, or most of us are. But learn how to use them correctly and learn how to safely keep them around others who may not know how to use them correctly. You're listening to John Howell Essential Cuts on eight ninety WLS. Obviously, the big story ricocheting around America today is what happened down in New Mexico, 2 o'clock local yesterday. We've been talking about it. We know of the incident. Now let's get the story advanced from our friend Jason Nathanson, who's the entertainment correspondent in L.A. for ABC News. Jason, uh, first, do we know uh, if uh, Alec Baldwin is still in the area? I assume that the state's attorney or prosecutor wants to talk to him at some point. I, I would imagine that he probably is, though I don't know for sure where he is or what his whereabouts are. And we know he talked to investigators at least yesterday, and they're trying to piece together everything that's going on and, and everything that's happened. But the latest that's come out in the past couple of hours is the uh, kind of the atmosphere, what was going on on set during in the hours leading up to and some of the incidents before that that many have claimed that led to a very unsafe set. Uh, we're getting reports that there was a walk-off by several employees or several uh, crew members in the hours just leading up to that were replaced by non-union employees. There were reports of a couple incidents of misfires of prop guns. Oh, my in, goodness. In the, in the days leading up to this. Um, and so all of that is going to be a part of the investigation. But the IATSE crew, and it's IATSE, the behind-the-camera workers that we had talked about, you know, that were, uh, were thinking of going on strike, um, their claims of very unsafe working conditions um, and almost negligence that would have led to something like this. Now, the re obviously, the tragedy set aside and the personal issues set aside. Alec Baldwin, I saw how distraught he looked outside the sheriff's office yesterday. Fine. But what are his civil liabilities here as a producer of this uh, production? You know, I don't know exactly what those are because the word producer means a whole lot of different things in Hollywood. He could be a producer in name only, or he could have a whole lot to do with it. I, I note that he's not an executive producer, which would mean he would probably does not have uh, those kind of financial liabilities. And oftentimes... Actors are given the title of producer when it doesn't really mean much of anything except for some extra money and a little uh, extra cachet. So um, I don't know. I would say the actual production companies would be the most liable. And we're not talking about studios here. This was not a studio movie. Warner Brothers didn't commission this. Netflix didn't commission this. This was a movie that these these finance companies were going to make and then probably hope to sell to a studio or a streaming service. Um, so they would be the ones who would be on the hook for that. 
Do you know, and this is all conjecture, but I assume that they were setting a shot, rehearsing a shot, or maybe even shooting a scene, and they had a hot weapon by mistake. From what we know, that it was rehearsal. So this was not a live scene that they were filming, that this was all part of rehearsal when everything went wrong. Uh, as for what was physically the problem with the gun, we don't know yet. Could be one of many things. Uh, there was a there was a letter from the IATSE union that seemed to indicate that there was a live round in the gun. We don't know if that's the case. Investigators and police they're saying that they're they're not releasing any information on that yet. Um, but if that was the case, first of all, that would be very that would be highly suspect um, and very strange because there is never any reason to have live ammunition in a gun on a set. There's just no need for it. They don't use it. Um, it's highly dangerous, obviously, and it could only lead to somebody getting hurt. Uh, there's just no use for it. Usually they would use blanks in this kind of situation, um, and we've seen the use of blanks that have had deadly effects before. Uh, in 1993 with Brandon Lee on the set of The Crow, that was the issue there because with a blank, it's still, I mean... Percussive effects. Right, it's it's gunpowder that mm-hmm. that explodes. The only difference is you don't have the projectile, the bullet that's that would be on the cap of that. But if there is something, if there if there was a uh, blank that was fired previously, and any of the there was any kind yeah. of residual material in the gun, that would shoot out as a projectile, as a bullet would, and that could cause somebody to die. I, I heard an, an expert in this on uh, Dan Abrams, your your colleague at ABC. His uh, radio program day. The, the man's name is Mike Tristano. He's been on 600 different uh, productions in Los Angeles, and he thought, as you said, number one, why do we ever have live ammo on set? And number two, if there's anybody getting, you know, uh, too wild with the weapons, he confiscates them because it's his name and his business on the line if something tragic happens. I, I tell you that to ask this question: Was this production in our, we think so far so far off the grid of mainstream Hollywood that they may have had live ammunition just because it's a ranch in New Mexico? No, I don't think so. Because first of all, with Alec Baldwin being a part of it, um, he is not somebody who would, to my knowledge, be a part of some fly-by-night production. He doesn't need the money. He doesn't need to be away from his family to in order to take a job. And he's talked about this before. He only takes jobs that he wants to. And he, I don't think he would take a job on a set that was that, to his knowledge, that was unsafe or uh, or you know schlocky in any kind of way. Um, so I don't believe that that would necessarily be the case. And the, you know, there was something like. Uh, I talked to the New Mexico film office. There were something like 21 productions going on in all over Mexico, uh, New Mexico yeah. yesterday. Yeah. So it's it's a popular place for filming. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Uh, we'll check back in as the story develops, I'm sure, next week. Sure thing. Take care. Take care. That's our friend, ABC Entertainment correspondent, but he joins us quite often from Los Angeles. That's Jason Nathanson. Just got an email here. I want to read some of it to you. John, I've worked on several shows locally using prop weapons as well as a career in the Marine Corps. I've never seen a live prop weapon given to the actors until the actual shot was about to be shot. Prop rounds generally have a piece of wadding that gets expelled from the end of the barrel when fired. Doesn't have much range, but it can cause injury. How did he fire two shots? Actually, I think there was only one shot fired. I heard this earlier today, and it went through the woman who was killed into the clavicle of the director who was standing directly behind her. Uh... There's a lot more to this story. I hope it comes out in the investigation and fully reported. And that's a, a nice uh, nice email sent to me from Roger. Last name redacted. Back to what uh, Jason was saying about the Brandon Lee situation. Brett Gogol, our executive producer, also has worked on a number of 
uh, productions, movie and TV shows. He was killed with a prop gun with blanks, but that's because there was some debris left in the barrel from the day before, yes? That's correct, and it's the type of scenario they basically came out afterwards and said that the prop guns need to be cleaned thoroughly every time after they're used, and in the Brandon Lee case, it was used the day before, wasn't cleaned out, there was a piece of shrapnel still in the prop gun, and that is what ended up firing and killing Brandon Lee. And hit him in the stomach. Correct. Yeah, from about 15 feet, I read. Yes. And then I, I also went back and reread the reports from 1978, the great guitarist, Chicago's own, from Chicago, Chicago the group, Chicago the city, DePaul the university, Terry Kath, who, now he died because he was screwing around, first with a revolver, doing a Russian roulette thing, there was, wasn't anything in any of the chambers, but then he was dealing with a 9mm, my understanding, or at least a semi-automatic afterwards, and yes, he dropped the magazine, but what happened? This is what I was trying to explain to my daughter today. This is how my own son shot me once. Because there was one left in the chamber. One left in the chamber. That's what you have to be so careful with. Now, that's not, that, that's not I don't think, pursuant or uh, uh, germane to this story, obviously. Uh, Alec Baldwin, these were replicas from the 1880s, single-action revolvers. But still, why any live ammo on any set? That's the first question that needs to be answered. And the civic liability, even if he's not an executive producer for Alec Baldwin, not to mention the professional and emotional liability, is just going to be absolutely huge. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Donald Trump and his team declared Wednesday night that they were launching. They were launching a media powerhouse. But within hours, hackers posted a picture of a defecating pig to the Donald J. Trump account on this new media powerhouse website, this series of platforms. Let's find out what went wrong and how quickly they may correct it. Drew Harwell writes on high tech and technology for the Washington Post and is a returning guest here on WDLS. Uh, Drew, thank you, sir, especially on a Friday afternoon. The site is called Truth Social. And it's since, I understand, has been pulled offline, but will go up again soon. What is the latest on this? Uh, yeah, the latest is they announced it Wednesday night. Uh, Pranksters immediately went to work uh, defacing the thing. They pulled it offline. And now, um, you know, we just are sort of left questioning what just happened. You know, the president has been saying for months that this is going to be a giant, uh, amazing Internet, uh, uh, you know, megaphone for him. But everything we've seen so far really shows that there's not a lot of security. Uh, it's kind of a, a unsophisticated design, and there's a lot of questions of whether this will actually work or will this, this will just be another sort of failed attempt to copy Twitter. Is this the Miller site? This is actually separate, and that's funny, isn't it, that there are a number of uh, different sort of uh, sites out of Trump world. His former Senior advisor Jason Miller created the site Gitter a couple months ago, which had its own disastrous launch. And they were hoping to have Trump be a part of that. But Trump said, no, I want to do my own thing. And so that uh, is now competing with Trump's new site. And then, of course, we have Gab and Parler and all of these other sites that are trying to sort of uh, get this pro-Trump audience. And none of them are really doing that well of a job at it. Yeah. Will this outlast the former from the desk of Donald Trump blog? That went uh, about a month, didn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. If it gets more than 29 days, it'll outlast the Trump blog. And, you know, we saw with that earlier this year where, of course, it was the same song and dance. Trump said it was going to be this amazing thing that everybody would love. And uh, nobody really clicked on it. We saw the traffic data. It was, it was pretty pitiful. Um, and so Trump finally pulled the plug. Uh, after less than a month, he said, I'm going to do a big social network, and then everybody will really love that. But as we're seeing right now, you know, a blog is one thing. A social network is 10 times more complicated. It, it costs more money. It's harder to get people on there. People already have all their networks on Facebook and Twitter. They don't want to start over. So, you know, I'm, if Trump had a tough time doing a blog, he's going to have an extra tough time doing this. And I'm, I'm kind of curious whether anybody's actually going to follow him here, him here or if this is just going to be another another dead website on the web. You wrote that he's uh, running a mostly unmodified version of Mastodon, which is open source software. Are they concerned about the use of their company being lumped in with Trump's? Yeah, they are actually. And, you know, it's not even a political thing for them. They do open source software. They say anybody can use it. You just have to follow some basic licensing rules. You have to, you know, say that you used our software. You have to share some things with us. Basic kind of copyright stuff that you see everywhere. But from the early version of Trump's site, we see we don't see any of those. And so the Mastodon people are actually pretty upset with that. And they're, they're talking to their lawyers. They're saying, we need to fix this pronto because right now, as it stands, this might be violating our copyright. And so... Already, the Trump website has not even really launched, and it's just facing, you know, a, poten- a potential legal dilemma. It's pot- facing just defacement and hacks, and so, yeah, there's the, the we're at the start of a real big mess here. Is he trying to do this on the cheap from Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> yeah, the the new Trump Media and Technology Group is headquartered at Mar-a-Lago, according to the documents. Uh, we don't know where really everybody is, but, you know, that is his base of operations. Everything's happening out of pump. So um, how involved he is with it and how much is actually going to be created and how much of it is just sort of more um, moving the pieces around on paper, that's the big question. How did the company get valued at $875 million already? Uh, that number appears to just be something they made up, um, which is not new for Trump. But, you know, this whole creation of the business is is pretty strange. They're doing a, a merger with something called a SPAC, which is a special purpose acquisition company. It's pretty much just a blank check company that somebody couldn't create. People buy shares in it, and then later down the road, it buys something. So you've been seeing on the stock market in the last couple of days a bunch of money just pouring into this SPAC on, based on people who think they can get money out of it. Whether they're true believers or just trying to turn around a quick buck, I think that's the that's the other big question. But yeah, how we're seeing it right now is a lot of, uh, you know, potentially a shell game and potentially a lot of sort of money in question that we don't really know where it's coming from and how it's going to be used. Drew Harwell is here, Washington Post technology reporter. Trump's new social media website was defaced by pranksters hours after its announcement, of course. Now, the site's terms of service are kind of odd. They ban an excessive use of capital letters. That was a hallmark of Donald Trump's online tweets and postings. And are we not allowed to disparage, tarnish, or otherwise harm the site or even Donald Trump? No, that's right. Yeah, that's one of the rules. No disparaging the site, which is pretty funny because they're framing it as, you know, a beacon of free speech. And, you know, for months, Trump has been criticizing Facebook and Twitter for saying, uh, you know, that they're, that they're censoring his voice by, by kicking him off after January 6th. You know, the, the, the sites let him stay on there for years and years and he built, you know, almost 90 million followers on Twitter. Um, but, the, but they kicked him off after, after the, uh, Capitol riots. 
saying, you know, the, the chance of violence was too high. So he, you know, became a crusader in his words against um, big tech. And yet, you know, this site uh, bans too many capital letters. It can ban you for making fun of the site. It can ban you for all sorts of things. And so you just kind of uh, have to laugh a little bit at the irony of, you know, Trump's site copying pretty much all of the all of the things he used to criticize other sites for. And I'm guessing that this site benefits from something that Trump wanted completely terminated, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Yeah, Section 230 is kind of the reason why um, the Internet can exist. It says companies don't face legal liability for the content that their users post, which um, can be misused in a lot of ways. And there's a, there's a lot of people talking about it, but there's also um, some value to that, too. Um, uh, and so, you know, Trump has, has been a anti-Section 230 person for a long time. He held up a big military spending bill, a must-pass bill last year over Section 230, even though they have nothing to do with each other. Um, and yet, you know, his new website depends on Section 230. The language is right in the terms of use. So, there is a big distinction between what Trump says um, uh, uh, <laughs> on his own stump versus what he actually does in reality and what his business needs to do to survive. So um, I don't know if we're going to get any answers on any of that. Just do as I say, not as I do. Drew Harwell, That's thank right. you very much for your time. We'll read more at the Washington Post. Have a great weekend, sir. Yeah, thank you. You too. My executive order calls for new regulations under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to make it that social media companies that engage in censoring or any political conduct will not be able to keep their liability shield. That's a big deal. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. So what was it like to be part of the Rush Limbaugh show, the highest rated radio show in history, spanned 33 years, obviously changed the American political conversation. Let's ask a man who will know. Uh, James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snurdly, joins us now. He's the author of a new book, which is coming out, I believe, next month. Nice to finally hear your voice, James. How are you, sir? John, what an honor to be with you. My pleasure, and thank you for having me. I mentioned to my listeners that I was uh, I heard Rush and your program. You were a big part of it, obviously, the entire entire run. Coming down the Edens, one of our expressways here in town, when he was making fun of the Reverend Jackson years ago on this station, uh, and I thought, wow, who is this guy? And you were there for the supersonic ride right up, and 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 were there for thirty three years. When did you know you were part of something really special? Almost immediately. I came on when there were 56 stations early on. And, John, the first years were like a blur. I mean, we were get, gaining so many stations so quickly. And and then the press started. And it just was a blur of activity. So right away, um, we all knew that this was something unusual and something unusual was happening. And part of that was because Rush was so very talented. As you just said, everybody almost that listens to the show can tell you where they were when they first heard it and first heard him. He was an unusual communicator in an industry of great communicators. And he changed the entire media landscape. I heard you mention that. He changed the political landscape. Yes. What did all of this happened? And on top of all of it, on top of all that success, he was an incredible human being, 
a generous soul, a boss that anybody would want to work for. He hired people. We had a very diverse staff. He hired people and left them alone. He hired you because of your merit and then let you do your job. How many? How big was that staff? I'm in New York. I was. I imagine it was eight or twelve people. And then when you guys moved south to Florida, did it uh, did it uh, in, get bigger exponentially? We still maintain a very lean staff, considering how big the, the footprint of the show was. We have a newsletter that just um, ceased its final edition in October. In fact, it should be mailing out now. And that was staffed with about five people. We have a web a web team that was six or seven people. I think all in all, our staff was still underneath forty people total. This is and a- that for all of the various operations, including the running of the business. Yeah. This is James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snurdly, the executive producer of the Rush Limbaugh program for all those years. I heard through the... I, I've known guys who worked uh, there and worked for ABC in New York and uh, uh, Sirius and all the other major companies. And a lot of these guys, I won't mention them by name, but they're they're loading the pants to work for. And I never heard that about Rush. And also, I heard a lot of the guys here that work on a national level don't really compensate very well. I heard exactly opposite regarding Rush Limbaugh, that he was very, very generous as far as the pay scale and the contracts and the even the separation clauses were generous. Rush was the most generous person I've ever met in the broadcast arena. He treated his staff exceptionally well. Exceptionally well. And that is one of the reasons why, not the, and, and it's not just about money, though. We wanted to please Rush because we loved him. There's a word, try that word in this industry. <laughs> Everybody exactly. on our staff loved our boss. We are all still heartbroken. We loved this man james when because when you went through a remarkable human being how difficult was it to execute that show and i don't know if this lasted six months or a year when he had difficulty hearing and you essentially had to you had to dictate up on a screen what the callers were asking rush were you part of that operation directly I was part of that i was part of that when he lost his hearing completely and what and, and so here's the deal it was one of the most inspiring times ever Here's a person who cannot hear, who relies on being able to also hear his own voice to do a radio program, and he's doing it in a way that has, that radio has never been done before. Brian Johnson, our engineer, crafted a system of, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but we had a color scheme going on that he could look up and determine. Our, our, our uh, stenographer, Dawn Bachinsky, had even worked out symbols to yeah. tell him when callers were going through various emotions or not. Yeah. He found a way to do it. So and you smart. realize something? Rush did the show deaf, the syndicated show completely deaf, for more years than he did it with his hearing. Get out of here, really? Yeah, add it up. He I... spent the last 20 years deaf. The first Thir- 13 years where he had his hearing. I thought that was. I thought that came and went. I thought that abated with time. No, no, no. When he lost his hearing, he lost his hearing completely. The only way he was able to hear, have a resemblance of hearing was with the cochlear implant. Yeah. But when those cochlear implants were out, he was completely 100% deaf. Did not know that. Um, 
I look forward to reading this book. I, I've read other books about Rush. I thought some were relatively fair and some were very unfair. Are you a golfer, sir? No, I am not. I'm not a golfer. <laughs> I just wondered about his game. The driving range every now and again, but that's it. Are you, uh, are you sticking around Florida or are you moving someplace else now? Well, I'm back and forth between uh, Florida and New York. I'm doing a show of my own now on what used to be your sister station, WABC in New York, which is my radio home. So I do an afternoon drive show there and then on on Saturdays mornings. Well, nice uh, hearing your voice, nice meeting you, good luck with the book, and I appreciate your work for 33 years, James. Thank you. Rush on the Radio is the title. Rush on the radio. You can find it at Amazon or jamesgolden.com. Got it. Thank you, James Golden. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a great weekend. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Before we welcome the alderman of the program, let's go through some of the numbers. Since the last census, well, the last census was uh, 2020, but uh, 10 years earlier, since 2010, the white population fell... About a quarter of a million to 986,000 currently, okay? Uh, the African-American population has dropped in the last 10 years by more than 86,000. It sits at about 800,000 now. However, Latino population increased 40,000. They sit at 819, give or take, thousand. So those are the numbers. Now let's welcome Alderman Gilbert Viegas, Back to WLS. Alderman, good afternoon. How are you, sir? Good afternoon, John. How are you doing? I'm well. Have you filed your map with the city clerk today? I did. Yes, we did. And now we, we have And now we have until December first to decide what the final ward map will look like. Latinos might gain two more seats to hold fifteen total, fifteen of fifty under this map, which you unveiled today, the Chicago Latino Caucus. You're now the largest minority group in Chicago. Why wouldn't you have the most minority wards? Well, also, John, I would add that we're only 40,000 away from being a plurality in the city of Chicago. Uh, So fair representation is what we've been talking about uh, since this process started uh, a couple months ago. The other thing thing I would add is that uh, the 15 seats that we're looking for are proportionate to the percentage of uh, Latinos that are in Chicago. So we have 30%. 30% of 50 is 15 so we feel uh, good on what it is that we're asking for. Yeah, your math works out. Uh, Alderman Jason Irvin, who is the, uh, the African-American Caucus chairman, his math doesn't really work out. Why do you think he wants a disproportionately higher number of wards uh, as opposed to the population? Yeah, that, that, that'll be a question that you might have to pose, pose um, uh, to um, Alderman Irvin. Um, what we did, even as uh, to extend an olive branch, is that although the African-American population is at 29%, we still uh, gave um, the African-American community in the, in the map 16 wards, which is equivalent to 32%. So they would still be overrepresented. And then in there, there's also the first time in this map, first time a, uh, a, a majority Asian ward uh, on the south side. And then also there's three majority minority wards that round that finish, that round up the the uh, fifty wards. So this is a very a very diverse uh, map that really takes into consideration the makeup of Chicago, uh, and I think it's uh, fair. And we've built, been able to begin to build a coalition around this map that we're calling the coalition map. Don't you also keep Inglewood, the entire neighborhood, within one ward in your map? 
Yes, we keep Inglewood, and that's something that um, uh, you know, John. Our North Star has our North Stars have been the data, the Voting Rights Act, and listening to what people want. And 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 throughout this process, we've heard that people want uh, an Asian ward. We've heard that communities don't want to be divided up by multiple aldermen. And so what we did was for the first time we made uh, Inglewood whole. Marquette Park is one uh, ward as well. Uh, Logan Square, instead of having three aldermen, now has two. So wherever we could, we made um, the uh, um, the representation um, and that community not have to have multiple uh, aldermen, but really tried to make it as, as condensed as possible uh, and make it easier for the constituent uh, and on how to really navigate uh, uh, city government. Alderman Viegas, does it appear that as far as the Black Caucus is concerned that Alderman David Moore would be the odd man out? Well, when when our demographer put this put these um, wards together, every ten years, um, you look at the landscape. It's a blank landscape. Then the, the data really determines where it goes. Those are just numbers on a map. Uh, at the end of the day, um, in this case here, Alderman Moore, who's the alderman of the seventeenth ward, has the ability to run uh, for the for the seat as an incumbent. Uh, and I would say, just because a ward is majority minority, does not guarantee that um, that seat will be represented by uh, a minority. There's five seats currently right now that have um, uh, representation that's not that's different than the the constituents they represent. Isn't Alderman Burke's ward uh, majority Latino now? Yes, it's been it's been um, um, uh, majority Latino for the past 20 years. And so he's been able to continue to represent the ward and the constituents continue sending them back to City Hall. So that's a, a choice that John and Jane Q. Citizen uh, make the determination as to who's going to represent them. Yes, I wish we could get beyond race when deciding who's going to be our representatives, frankly. I have to go for competence and intelligence first. Yeah. Well, under the Voting Rights Act, this is these are uh, the laws that have taken place because of the fact that of the, of the Jim Crow laws back in the South and then also some of the laws that in Texas where you had uh, the Latinos that were um, yeah, marginalized. Discriminated against. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so these are the laws, the Voting Rights Act, and this is what we have to abide by under the under the federal law. I know it makes for some strange shaped wards. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, Chicago being a grid, you would think that it's very easy to go from uh, one um, one like you know from North Avenue to, to, yeah. to Fullerton and Western to mm-hmm. Pulaski and be a ward, but. Unfortunately, that's not the way that it's drawn sometimes. Back to your proposal at 16, which seems like quite an olive branch. Do you think instead of having a knockdown, drag out, ugly fight here, do you think Alderman Irvin might just go for that? Uh, you know, that's again, John, that's a question you have to ask um, um, uh, the alderman. I can tell you that we have, um, and I say we, the Latino caucus, has tried to uh, meet with uh, members of the Black Caucus uh, to talk on how to come to a compromise but when you're negotiating you have to have two willing parties that's willing to negotiate against your or else you're negotiating against yourself uh, and I can tell you that when you do that you lose and so um, what we've done is uh, we've had a, a couple of initial meetings and um, they didn't go too well and so we have to move forward and so this is what this is what we proposed I mean it's always tough to give up ground that you've held but that being said if roles are reversed let me ask the question a different way do you think you'd be apt to take this compromise um, I, I think that, again, the data has to determine what the representation is. And I think that fact that, um, that in our map, we're proposing 16 
wards, which is 32%, which is 3% higher than the uh, African-American um, representation in the city. I think that um, in this case here, I would I would take that deal. But again, I'm not in that situation. My job is to try to make sure that there's some parity here. And I think with the with the city being 30% um, Latino and our, our request of 15 seats, it's it's it's, it's uh, it seems to the it seems proportionate. It seems reasonable yep. to me. Yep. This looks like it might be the end of the eleventh ward being the automatic seat for the Daly family with it uh, moving north to through Chinatown. Well, I think um, the eleventh ward, as we speak right now, is currently today forty one forty one percent Asian, uh, and um, so the um, uh, the rep the uh, Alderman Thompson has successfully um, won two terms there mm -hmm. uh, with, the, with, the, with the Asian community that was hovering in the 30s and now the 40s. So again, just because the, the ward is proportionately uh, a different ethnicity than maybe the representative, at the end of the day, John Q and Jane Q citizen determine who their rep's gonna be. As a very famous talk show host said a thousand times on the station, it's societal evolution, isn't it? Yep, yes it is. Alderman Villegas, thank you very much for your time. Have a great weekend, sir. You too, sir. Thank Take you, Bye-bye. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Yeah, the mandate causes a lot of stress. COVID causes stress. The pandemic and the shutdowns causes stress. But memes, funny memes in particular, apparently they relieve the stress, help people cope with the stress of COVID-19, the pandemic, and all that goes with it, looking at memes about COVID-19 also increased people's confidence in their ability to deal with the pandemic. This according to a study published in the Journal of Psychology of Popular Media, which I read so you didn't have to. The lead author joins us now, Jessica Myrick. She's a professor at Pennsylvania State University. And... Uh, she found that viewing just three memes can help people cope with the stress of living during a global pandemic. Professor, welcome uh, to Double DLs here in Chicago. Essentially, aren't memes just uh, modern versions of a, a joke? <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's a good joke. We can share any time. We can look at any time, 24-7. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a way to connect with other people, even when we're isolated and in this really unprecedentedly stressful time. Doctor, how many people did you survey and what did the survey consist of? Yeah, so we um, had almost 800 people look at a few different things and we broke people into groups. So we had a group of people who looked at real memes and they were either about COVID-19 or they were the same image, but we changed the caption to be not about COVID-19. And then we had a third group that didn't look at memes at all. So what we were able to do with that design is compare how people responded based on what they saw. And what we found overall, not too surprisingly, was that people who saw these sort of cute, funny, broadly popular memes said they felt better than the group who did not see any memes. So we seem to get some sort of general positive emotion boost just out of seeing memes. But what was even more interesting was that if you saw a meme about COVID-19 that you thought was funny, made you feel good, then you said you were less stressed about COVID-19 and better able to cope with the stress of COVID-19. So it seems to be that we can really engage with the stressful topic if we approach it from a more satirical standpoint. Were any angry cats used in the survey? 
<laughs> there actually were some angry cat memes uh, in our in our sample. And like I said, we took real memes that were out there, and we had a separate group of people rate them for how funny and cute they were to make sure that we were using these generally popular feel-good type of memes. Did any of the participants actually suffer from the disease, to your knowledge? Uh, yeah, we we did have a few, and we controlled for that to use statistical language. So we made sure to account for demographic factors and you know sort of experience with COVID, whether they or someone in their household had had it. And even after we statistically controlled for those factors, we still found this effect that viewing memes about COVID nineteen seemed to help reduce stress levels. Dr. Jessica Myrick is here, professor of media studies at Penn State University. She's a lead author of a study on the effects of coping with COVID through humorous memes. My wife uh, is on the Instagram constantly, it seems. And, I mean, I, I tell her, I, I, I say, please put that down because I think what you're doing is doom scrolling because of the <laughs> analytics, obviously. If she watches a video, then Instagram feeds her more of the same and it can be the cumulative effect can be very very depressing is it mm -hmm. safe to say that in general during times of crisis or high stress you better learn how to laugh and lighten up a little yeah i i think that's a really good takeaway and i think the other takeaway that that example sort of points to is yes there's an algorithm but it's based on what you're following and we can curate our social media feeds we can unfollow you know, the accounts that make us feel bad and we can follow more of the ones maybe like memes that make us feel good. Or you can use Instagram only for the puppies and kittens and jokes and but use Twitter for your news so you can have separate platforms to use for different purposes too. So people have to learn how to process the news without getting overwhelmed by it. Yeah, and I think just pay attention to your feelings when you are consuming news or consuming other types of media and notice take a breather <laughs> and it's important to consume news i'm a former journalist before i became a professor so i think we should all listen to the news but it wouldn't hurt to maybe watch a few videos of cute animals or view some funny memes before and after is the media in general uniformly bad or good for mental health <laughs> uh I, you know that's uh as a researcher i have to give you the sort of science answer is that there's no one answer. It depends on who you are, how you respond to the media. Uh, and media means so many different things. It can be a radio show like this. It can be Instagram account of funny dogs. It can be uh, a book. It can be a movie. So I think what would be helpful is if we're thoughtful consumers of media and sort of become more self-aware of our emotional states. And, you know, we want to be good citizens, too. So some media can be bad for some people in certain circumstances, and it's kind of up to us to try to be aware of that. And finally, Doctor, I know you're at Happy Valley right now. Just a, a favor, could you please ask Penn State to go easy on our fighting Illini <laughs> tomorrow? Uh, you never know what can happen in Big Ten football, so, uh, you know, a team win. Doctor, thank you very much for your time and your analysis. I found a very fascinating reading, and we'll tweet it out and put it up on our socials for all our listeners. Great, thank you. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Thanks so uh, much for listening. I know you have many, many choices. I appreciate it. Thousands of Chicagoans scarfed down hot dogs in hopes of being named Vienna Beef's top dog, but nobody was quite as passionate as Stephanie Esposito. She's of the Southwest Side. She visited 367 hot dog stands in just five weeks to win Vienna Beef's Hot Dog Stand Challenge. 
I uh, did the math, 367 stands in 35 days. She averaged more than 10 stands per day, and she put an extra 9,000 miles on her car. So anyway, uh, more than 4,300 people participated in the challenge, but Stephanie was the big winner, and as I mentioned a couple times in the last hour, she's a longtime friend of Kim Gordon. So, Kim, let's welcome Stephanie Esposito to the Big 89. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? Good. How are you guys? Stephanie, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. This is a true accomplishment. Yeah. Why why did you do this? I'm just curious. The 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 money and I'm glad you won. Congratulations. Everybody needs a passion, but it was only a thousand dollars and you put nine thousand miles on your car. Um, so my boyfriend sent me a tweet about this kind of as a joke, like, Oh, look at this cool thing that's happening. So I mean, we've all been locked inside for eighteen months, so it was something to do and get out there and I mean, I haven't been on a real vacation, but I got to see Illinois and Wisconsin and Indiana and drive around and do something. Oh, so it was more than just Chicago proper. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I see. I, you know, I, I remember talking about this. I think, I think, I don't know if Kim, if we talked about it together, but I remember when Vienna hot dogs, they came up with a contest and it's kind of a goofy contest and whoever came up with it, certainly uh, it is of interest to people that want to fill time on a radio program i know you know radio as well as anybody and yeah. i just i just didn't know anybody would actually go out and do this so give us a in general the radius how far did you have to travel to get to 367 stands in 35 days um so it went there were several locations in the chicagoland area but then to lake zurich uh milwaukee all the way down to carbondale marion oh. illinois oh. out to williamsport indiana like all over how did you yeah. map your 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 how did how did you map this out? What was your routing like? Um, so I actually had a friend who helped me create like a Google sheet, and then from there I was able to put it into Google Maps, so I could create map routes a lot faster. Um, and then yeah, you know, I would pick a location like all right, I'm going to start in Aurora. I'm going to leave at eight a.m. Go to Aurora, and I was able to kind of check off each point as I went along and try to be as efficient as possible. Stephanie, I feel like this is kind of a combination of the amazing race and diners, drive-ins, and dives. Did you f have a favorite place that you that you visited in these you know in these weeks, or did hot dogs all kind of start to taste the same? Um, there were actually some really good places downstate. Uh, Decatur has a spot that they they're known for barbecue, and when they sell out for the day, they close. So their normal hours are like nine till. 6 p.m., but they were closing at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, so I had to go back there twice because they just closed early. Um, Carol's Smokehouse Indicator was really good. Um, Corky's in Indiana was really good. Uh, all the way down in Sinai, Illinois, the person who owns it is originally from Berwyn, and they had a really good hot dog, so it was cool to like meet Chicago people all the way at the bottom of the state. Did Vienna require you go to every one of these 365 stands, 367 stands? Yeah, so the way to win was whoever got to all 365 stands first won. So you had to go to each and every one and take a picture of, like, the QR code that they had. Huh. And then that's how you, like, registered that you went there. Oh, that's so good. A million dollars worth of uh, publicity, and people volunteered to do this, and they got it done for $1,000. And also, you get a VIP card and some great uh, tickets to sporting events? Yeah, so every month there's uh, different sporting events tickets, or you get to go to a different event in the city. You also get a tour of the Vienna Beef Hot Dog like factory. So that's pretty cool. I'm excited about that. 
And I think you're also doing good with the money that you got. Is that right? Yeah. So I currently work with kids. So I've bought so many hot dogs throughout the years for parties that it's just going to be big parties for the kids at the park district and my seniors too. Do you work for the park district now? I do. Yeah. And did you talk to your physician about this before you embarked on it? <laughs> um, I did not consult my doctor first, but I mixed it up. I didn't just do hot dogs. I also had some milkshakes or I made sure to just throw some money into the tip jar. So it went right to the workers. So, but look, I did the math. You weren't consuming 10 hot dogs a day. Oh, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. I mean, some weekends, I would, I would hit 60 places in a weekend, so there's no way you can physically stuff 60 hot dogs into you. Oh, yes, there is. Um, I've known guys, uh, and I mean, you've known the same people that could do 60 hot dogs in a weekend. Oh, yeah. Believe I mean, but the perk of it is, like, the hot dog's the perfect car snack, right? You don't have to get too messy. You can hold one hand and drive around, and... Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I, I was disappointed. I've only been downtown for the last couple of weeks since uh, the company said you have to come back downtown. And and uh, uh, gosh, what's a hot dog stand right on uh, right on Ontario, just before you leave River North and you hit the ramp? It's on the south side, right there. Come on, it's been there a thousand years, and it's a great hot dog stand. I used to go through the drive-through. Al's beef? No. Uh, it, I think it might have been an Al's, yes. Yeah, it was an Al's. It's, yeah, it's there been closed right over there, yeah. Oh, it's so sad. I was going to go there the other night, and uh, Al's is closed. I used to go through the drive-thru, and I, I used to, as you mentioned, they're, not, they're good to eat while you drive. I would only get onions and pickles on it, as opposed to the, the mustard and uh, the, the sloppier stuff, because then I could eat it with one hand as I'm you know driving through uh, rush hour traffic getting out of downtown, but... Uh, well, I guess congratulations. Are you going to go up on the um, on the Vienna Beef Hall of Fame? Do they similar to your former radio station? Does Vienna Beef have a Hall of Fame? Vienna Beef actually does have a Hall of Fame. Like if you go into some of these hot dog stands, you'll see a plaque on their wall that they are part of the Vienna Beef Hall of Fame. So they were actually joking about that yesterday when they announced the awards that they'll have to sort of come up with a Wall of Fame for this competition. So I might be on a Wall of Fame for Vienna Beef. And Good for you. and Stephanie Esposito. Um, have you received a congratulatory, congratulatory call from Mike North, famous hot dog man in town? I have not. Well, he's missing out then. Yeah. Brett, did you have a question? Oh, I do. You, can, you I, can hook him up with my information. I will do so. I well, saw, maybe I won't. I don't want to be on the subpoena list. No thanks. Brett, go ahead. Uh, Stephanie, I saw that they announced, they haven't officially announced, but they said they might do a similar competition next year. Can we expect you to defend your title? Um, so if they do the same competition next year, I actually kind of want the second place prize because they like cater a party for you for hot dogs. And again, that would be great for the kids. And you get this little like mini hot dog cart that like seems the buns on one side and seems the hot dogs on the other side. So second, third and fourth place got a really cool prize too. So I might aim for that. Seems like a two time champ could get whatever she wants. Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie, do you miss working in our industry or did you make the right move to the park district? Um, I mean, I do miss radio. It was really fun. It wasn't the funnest to wake up at like 3 a.m. every day, but um, no, I loved radio. It was fun. It was cool to know what's going on in the news and be a part of the city even more, and I do miss the radio industry. Were you with uh, Spike, or were you with Steve Cochran? Who did you work with? Um, I did news production oh, with okay. him when she was at okay. GN. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was in the newsroom. When you said 3 a.m., I just assumed you worked with those guys. You obviously worked with them, but not directly with them, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations, Stephanie Esposito, uh, the queen of Vienna hot dogs. Thanks so much.
uh, good luck next year if you choose to defend your title. All right. And I would check with your physician. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Stephanie. Take care, Stephanie. I, I just, All right. Bye, Kim. I just had uh, my annual exam uh, this week with my doc, and I haven't seen him in a couple years. And uh, he said, you look good. You you look uh, better than I expected. And uh he said, uh, he, "He said, now what are you? What is your consumption like? What are you eating?" And I gave him uh, the list of things that I normally eat. Basically, uh, ballpark. Uh, oh, I, I'd hate to mention a competing brand there. Excuse me, but uh, I wrote down uh, what I generally consume, uh, gram wise. You know, carbohydrates and on and on. My my A one C and my sugar levels and my fasting sugar. And then he said, "Well, how many drinks do you have a week?" And I told him, and he goes, "I'm just going to go ahead and double that." Because every physician just doubles that. Whatever you tell them you have for an alcoholic uh, total per week, if you say, oh, you know, maybe maybe five or six, it goes down as 10 to 12. I'm what just, do you like to drink with a hot dog? <laughs> oh, cold beer. Okay. Or, thing, or whatever's handy. You know, lighter fluid. Uh, anything that's handy. Uh, that's how it is. <laughs> Light, a cold beer would be great. Lighter fluid if necessary. Whatever. John Howell, Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS.